1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast.
0: Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at Mummy Reborn from 2019. Apparently, this film is often mistaken for the Mummy Rebirth, which came out in the same year. And, well, interestingly, although the Mummy Rebirth and Reborn are not related at all, they also both quite obviously try to model themselves on the Brendan Fraser Mummy trilogy, and were almost certainly made as a way of kind of like tricking people into thinking they were a new entry into the series. This does seem a little bit odd, as, well, you've got to bear in mind that these films came out 11 years after Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, the last in that series, and there had even been a big blockbuster mummy movie with Tom Cruise since then. Though, admittedly, that film did destroy an entire franchise before it had even begun, the never-to-be Dark Universe. I think it also needs to be remembered that when the Tom Cruise film did come out, there was a bit of a protest to Brendan Fraser not being in it. So I am wondering if if these films, uh, This Mummy Reborn and Rebirth, were made as a way of kind of like profiting off of this renewed interest in Brendan Fraser. Well, I mean, I probably should stress, I don't know if this is actually the case. It's a, a guess on my side. But it did come out about two years after the Tom Cruise film. Not only would these films have taken time to make, but Brendan Fraser was still very much beloved at this time, so it wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, um, in terms of the format for this episode, it'll be the same as usual. We'll start by having a look at the historical accuracy, and then I shall simply review the film and rate it out of 10. But before that, as usual, it is time for my dramatic intro... Right. Financial debt is sneaking up on you. Made harder as you have to look after your severely mentally handicapped brother. Just as you think things cannot get any worse, you find out that the antique shop where you work is going out of business. All seems lost, but then there is one last glimmer of hope. In the antique shop, there is an ancient mummy and an amulet worth £800,000. You, your boyfriend and his friends decide to steal it, hoping that this will change your fortunes. However, little do you realise that the amulet is cursed and you have just awoken an ancient evil. You will now have to face the mummy. Reborn! Okay, uh, we've now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So, how accurate is this film? Put simply, it's not. There we go. Right, onto the review section. <laughs> um, don't worry, I'm only joking. I, of course, I'm going to look at the history. However, I probably should just mention that saying historical accuracy here may be a little bit misleading. Ultimately, there is so little to talk about here that I'm basically just going to use the tiny amount that is present as a kind of springboard of sorts. A lot of the subjects here have already been covered a few times during the course of this podcast, so I'm going to go a little bit deeper into each subject to reveal some, well, basically new information about each area. Okay, let's get on with it. To start with, uh, the amulet around the mummy's neck vaguely kind of has like a scarab beetle shape to it. Just quickly, I'll go over the parts I have mentioned in previous episodes. Heart Scarab amulets were often decorated with Spell 30B of the Book of the Dead. This spell helped the deceased during what is known as the Weighing of the Heart Ceremony, where basically, at one part of the deceased's journey through the underworld, they would arrive at a hall where they would have their heart weighed against a feather, known as the Feather of Ma'at, or kind of like the Feather of Truth, if you will, the Feather of Cosmic Order. If their heart was heavy with sin, it would also be heavier than the feather, and then their heart would be torn apart by a terrifying goddess named Amit the Devourer, who was part lioness, part crocodile, and part hippo. The deceased would then cease to exist. On the other hand, if their heart was free from sin, it would be as light as a feather, and the scales would be balanced. At this point, the deceased would be allowed to pass into the field of reeds, which can sort of be likened to heaven, I suppose, more or less. Just before the actual weighing of the heart, the deceased would also have to make negative confessions to judges around the room. These were things like, um, you know, I did not steal, I did not sleep with a married woman, I did not murder, you know, that kind of thing. It was basically the deceased's time to say, look how perfect I am, aren't I great? And ultimately, it is at this point of the ceremony that Spell 30B is supposed to help, as it basically told the heart not to speak out against the deceased if they were lying. So, it's a little bit like a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will. These harp scarabs are actually a relatively late invention in ancient Egypt. The first evidence we have for them dates to the 17th dynasty, so around about 1580 to 1550-ish BC, very roughly. This means that Pharaonic Egypt had already been going on for about 1,500 years by this point, as it has its origins around about. 3100 BC, when a king named Nama unified the land. However, heart scarabs were not the only type of scarab amulet. During the late period, so from around about 713 BC, winged scarab beetle amulets also became very popular. In terms of appearance, (laughs) I mean, unsurprisingly, they were a scarab beetle with wings that were outstretched. In general, these were normally made of a material known as Egyptian faience. Uh, for anyone who's interested in this material, I have put a link to some items in the episode description, you know, that are made of Egyptian faience. You probably see it and they go, oh, it's that kind of material, because you've almost certainly seen objects made of it before. Um, very often when people do see it, it's not uncommon for them to mistake it for either stone or pottery. But in fact, it's neither of these. Instead, it's a glazed, non-clay ceramic that was popular throughout Pharaonic Egypt and, well, even before then. Anyway, uh, back to winged scarabs. Once again, these were typically placed on the chest of the deceased, but they were not decorated with spell 30B of the Book of the Dead like the harp scarab is. Instead, they were used to identify the deceased with the newly born son. I guess this may sound a little bit odd, but when looked at in context, it does make a bit more sense. To explain this, we first need to bear in mind that scarab beetles are, well, they're a type of dung beetle. The Egyptians made several observations about these dung beetles. Firstly, they noticed that they rolled their ball of dung along the ground, and they likened this to the sun moving across the sky. They also noticed that from this ball of dung other beetles emerged. This is actually because dung beetles keep their spore in there, but to the ancient Egyptians, it looked like these other beetles were emerging from the ball of dung in a self-created fashion. As such, over time, these ideas presented themselves in Egyptian religion. Each morning, it was believed that the newly born sun god would be rolled out from the underworld by Capri, a god commonly depicted as a scarab beetle just as a dung beetle rolls its ball of dung along the ground. Then, much like the beetles emerging from the ball of dung were, well, could to be self-created, so was Ra, the sun god. He was a self-created deity. Therefore, because of this link between Capri and the sun god, the winged scarab beetle amulets linked the deceased to the newly born sun and the idea of, like, regeneration. There are also a few other types of scarab amulets, which I shall just briefly cover. From around about the beginning of the 18th dynasty, and seemingly dying off shortly after the Amarna period, so from around about 1550 BC until around about 1300 BC, there was also commemorative uh, scarabs which were inscribed with the achievements of the pharaoh. These were often spread throughout the elite members of society, and were used as propaganda to portray the pharaoh in a positive light. And even on top of all of the ones mentioned, there were many different types of scarab amulets. The earliest of these go all of the way back to the 6th dynasty, somewhere between 2350 BC until 2180-ish BC. Again, very, very roughly. These served a multitude of different purposes, such as being non-royal seals, uh, for spreading messages via inscriptions, or simply as social status symbols. So, as you can probably tell, scarab amulets held many different meanings, which varied depending on their purpose of manufacture and the time period they were made in. The next point that is worth talking about is that the mummy is married and has more than one wife. In fairness, especially when it came to the pharaoh, it was not uncommon for them to have multiple wives, and in fact, many of the pharaohs had harems. The most famous example of this would probably be Ramesses II. He had over 200 wives and over 100 children as well. I mean, Birthdays must have been a nightmare, he's basically just got one for each day of the year. (laughs) Um, However, it was usual for the king to have a principal wife, and although it wasn't a hard and fast rule, it was usual for this wife to be related to the king in order to keep the bloodline pure. You know, hence you get things like Tutankhamun marrying his half-sister, and things like that. It is worth noting, however, that this tended to only apply to the pharaoh, It wasn't common for normal people to marry their relatives in ancient Egypt, though there is some evidence for it here and there, usually in a strategic manner to hold on to certain properties. Regardless of whether it was a pharaoh or someone else in Egypt, one of the main, though not only, purposes of marriage was to produce a rightful heir. An important task of this rightful heir was to perform the funeral rites for his parents, making sure that they had a good funeral and were sustained in the afterlife. So, to the film's credit, I guess, the idea of polygamy in ancient Egypt was most certainly not unheard of. The final thing I would like to talk about in this section is that the two wives of the mummy wear very cheap Egyptian headbands, which have clearly been bought from some just costume shop, probably in the discount section in all honesty, On these are Uraei, so I should probably just say Uraei is the plural, Uraeus is the singular use of the word. You've almost certainly seen these before, they're the kind of cobra that's standing up on its tail. Think at the top of Tutankhamun's death mask, the, the cobra there. First things first, although the film is rather vague, the mummy here is not supposed to be royalty. Uraei were a symbol of kingship and so these wives would not have been wearing these. In fact, the Uraei was supposed to represent a cobra, rearing up in order to spit fire at anyone who threatened the king. This cobra represented the goddess Wajet. She was the goddess of Lower Egypt, and was the counterpart to Necbet, who I have spoken about on previous episodes, uh, such as Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, for instance. In the description for this episode, I've actually put a link to that episode, just for anyone who might want to give it a listen, or a, you know, re-listen if you want. For those who prefer a more visual sort of representation, I've also done a video on Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, which is on YouTube. So, you know, please do visit the Mummy Movie Podcast on there as well. To conclude, once again, there is basically no historical accuracy in this film. And in fact, you have to search hard to find anything worth talking about at all. However, on the upside, at least it does force you to look more in-depth into the subjects. Largely because otherwise, this section of the episode would have lasted all of 10 seconds. So, there is that, I guess. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here I shall simply analyze the film, saying what I liked and disliked about it and then rate it out of 10. And oh boy. Well, this certainly is a film I can't take that away from it. Right, um let's start with the positives. Okay. Right. Okay. So this film is often mistaken for The Mummy Rebirth. In fairness to The Mummy Reborn, the acting is marginally better. It's still definitely not good, but it is marginally better. There were also one or two bits that did make me chuckle, though not always for the right reasons. For instance, about half an hour into the film, our main characters steal an amulet from the antique shop where the main character, Tina, works. Shortly after this, we find out that they've also just stolen an entire mummy from the shop as well. Firstly, this is just a bizarre choice as, well, surely that would have been hugely impractical. But also, why was there just a full mummy in an antique shop? How on earth did it get there? Did did someone just donate it one day? I'm, I'm a bit confused. In another part, Tina opens the front door and the mummy has just stood there. They kind of just stare at each other for a few seconds and then Tina just closes the door and walks off. I mean, don't get me wrong. I guess this makes more sense than just standing there screaming as they do in so many other films, but it still came off as very awkward and weird. I will admit, though, there was one scene that genuinely made me a little sad, and I mean that in a positive way. Um, So, to explain this, part of the premise of this film is that Tina's parents have both died and she's having to look after her autistic brother, Max. Max is finding this hard and, well, he's, he's acting up, which is, I suppose, to be expected. Not a bad story, in all honesty, considering everything. There is one particular part where we find out that Max has continued to text his mother on his phone, and is using this as a kind of coping mechanism. You know, he's kind of pretending she's still there. In all honesty, I found this quite sweet and, well, sad. It made sense for his character, but I do also wish they had leaned into this more, as it was a good way of looking into his mind. To be honest though, that was one of the most frustrating things about this film. There are some genuinely good ideas here. There is a glimmer of a good film here, but it's just not realised. It's so frustrating. As I kind of already said a little bit in the introduction... Um, The main part of this film is that um, our characters have stolen an amulet worth £800,000. A little later in the film, the dealer arrives and dumps a bag of cash on the ground for the exchange, we know because he wants to buy the amulet. But then he gets killed by the Brides of the Mummy. As such, the characters, as well as running from the Mummy, are also fighting each other over this bag of cash. Basically, Adding this bag of cash into the film has changed the dynamic of a very familiar format. After all, it has essentially added greed to the mix. So again, you might be thinking, this sounds really fun. But much like Max texting his mum, it's it's a concept that's never fully realised or leaned into. It just felt like a missed opportunity as it's only present in a couple of scenes. On top of that, Everything in this film looks incredibly cheap, and not in a particularly charming way for the most part. The amulet is supposed to be worth 800 grand, but it's so pathetically badly made. And then there's the costumes, which all appear to have been bought from the discount section of a costume shop. However, then we arrive at the worst offender. The actual mummy itself which may be the worst one i have seen in the entire time i've been making this podcast it literally looks like someone's just thrown a shredded blanket over a man and don't get me wrong i guess in a weird way this is an achievement but it's definitely not a good one um on top of that the, the script is also really bad and max the autistic character is played more like the autistic character from the first scary movie than anything that has any sensitivity whatsoever. To add to this, we also have the fact that all of the characters are not particularly likeable. Tina's probably the most likeable one in the film, but ultimately even she comes off as incredibly naive and an absolute pushover. Her boyfriend is manipulative, and his, I suppose, best friend is literally a drug dealer and thief who would turn on them over the smallest thing. He's shown to be a horrible person. I really don't get who I'm supposed to be rooting for here. There are also just one or two scenes that really come out of nowhere. For instance, about 40 minutes into the film, there's a random scene with people taking drugs in the woods. The only purpose they serve is to be killed by the mummy, but their characters are given no context whatsoever, and the acting and script in this bit are so bad it legitimately made me wince. Finally, it's hard to know who this film was made for. The beginning jumps between serious with the odd funny joke, and if it isn't obvious I'm saying funny in quotation marks, they're just not funny most of the time. And then about an hour in, the film turns into a weird stoner comedy, complete with Max, the autistic character, being able to understand ancient Egyptian because he can read the film's subtitles. So forth-wall-breaking, I guess. In the second half, we also start getting deliberately bad fight scenes, with loads of slow-mo, a backing of classical music, and Street Fighter-style graphics. It's so bizarre. Like, I don't get where all of this came from. And as such, it feels like the second half of this film is designed for a completely different audience to the first half. So overall, I hate saying this about films because I like being positive, but I just didn't have a fun time watching this one. I will stress that I definitely did not watch this film in the correct setting, but by the same token, I have no idea what the correct setting would be as the film you know, does a complete 180 halfway through. As I said, I really hate giving bad reviews, as I I am aware that someone put their time and effort into this film, but I, I also just can't lie. I feel that the target audience for the second half of this film would have basically given up by the point the film changes. I myself only managed to sit through it because I was reviewing the film. So, although there were one or two things that made me chuckle, and although I do genuinely believe there were one or two interesting premises here that so annoyingly we're not realised. Ultimately, what we are left with here is an incredibly uneven film with unlikable characters, cheap costumes, an annoyingly bad script, and the worst mummy I have ever seen. Surprisingly, I suppose, I'm not giving this film 1 out of 10 because I do at least think it tried something a bit different. It just certainly didn't work. Overall, I am giving this film A 3 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, why not consider liking the episode, leaving a comment or a review? Why not start subtly dropping the Mummy Movie podcast into casual conversation? Like, for instance, if your friend says, Boy, oh boy, gee whiz. I really need to relax, but I always feel like I'm wasting my time when I do. You could reply, hey gosh darn, I have a great suggestion for you. Why not listen to the Mummy Movie podcast? You can relax whilst learning about ancient Egypt. You know, just normal, regular conversation. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And join me next week, where we shall be looking at American Mummy from 2014. That's right, we are going back to the Aztecs. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then.